Welcome to the Special Event Studio. I am Scott North, Sales Manager for TO Live. I work with private, non-ticketed events coming into our three venues in the City of Toronto. Meridian Hall and the St. Lawrence Centre downtown, Meridian Arts Centre uptown. We are back after hiatus and rebooting to the original intent of this podcast. We will tell the stories belonging to the players in the event industry, how they got started, their journeys with stops along the way, their tales of the interesting, exciting, and captivating elements of the event world. Welcome to the Special Event Studio. Welcome to the Special Event Studio podcast. I almost forgot the name because we have been on hiatus for a while, but I'm thrilled today to welcome Christine Simpson, who is Sportsnet's hockey reporter, host, and interviewer. She's a jack-of-all-trades at Sportsnet. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Scott, it is uh, my pleasure to be here with you. Good to see you again, my friend. Good to see you. Um, so th- today, today is all about you. So let's let's start. So where where did it all start? Where'd you grow up at, Chris? I grew up in London, Ontario. Um, yeah, and and I feel like growing up in my family, the middle sister between two brothers who happened to play hockey. I feel like that influenced my. Not just my life as a sister, but my my professional career. Not that I even realized it at the time, but I certainly spent a lot of time in in hockey rinks as a kid because my brothers both playing, uh, which translated in late later years to uh, my profession of where I find myself now. So, so back in the day when you're you're being uh, taken to all the rinks with your brothers, like at that time, as you as you were growing up, what did you want to do for a living? So I will say, I mean, I think like every kid, you kind of go through different phases. Um, at one point, just because I loved the idea of travel, I'm like, oh, I, I you know, I want to be an airline stewardess. And then I'm like, oh, but I like to make my point, so I want to be a lawyer. But honestly, I didn't have, and I remember even heading into Western, where, where I went to Everyone else was like, well, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an accountant. And I still didn't really know, um, which I I feel is actually okay for people who don't figure out until a little bit later. Like even at Western, I kind of took a little bit of everything. Um, what do they say? Jack of all trades, master of none. Maybe that was me. But I'm grateful for everything that I did learn along the way because it's all helped me to get to this point, even though it certainly was not a straight line getting to where I am today. What did you major in at Western? So, and I didn't. I, I got a social science degree. And I'm not even sure if you're allowed to do that anymore. I think you have to major in something. I remember year one taking a little bit of, you know, I took business 20, psych 20, um, anthropology. I did take a journalism course. But I kept thinking, okay, well, after year one, I'll, I'll figure out where my passion lies and I'll focus in on that. But it was more that I like really enjoyed a little bit of everything that I took. And at that time, I then just kept taking, you know, courses that I really enjoyed. So my degree is in social science without a major. And so being from London, going to Western University in London, did you, did you stay at home or did you? I did. Yeah, I stayed at home. And um, I, I actually kind of liked that because you had the sanity of a place where you could actually focus and study when you needed to. But still, being in London was able to enjoy everything that everyone else did, you know, going to the seeps, going to frat parties, enjoying. 
but still kind of having the comforts of home, it, it worked for me. And having, um, you know, our family has a long history of, of Western. My parents actually both went, went to Western. They met at Western. All of my aunts and uncles uh, went there. All of my siblings actually, except for Craig, he was the black sheep of the family and went to Michigan State on, on a hockey scholarship. But I guess it turned out pretty well for him. Uh, you know, a little bit about your, your family, uh, huge sports family, uh, mom and dad, both, both uh, elite athletes and, and obviously your brothers. Um, <clears throat> so Dave, uh, he, he, he was a, he was a star. I think he's still got a record for the London Knights. Does he not? He does. He has still got the highest point total in a, in a, in a regular season for the London Knights, which is pretty impressive when you consider all of the players that have played for the London Knights. Um, you know, Patrick Kane, Corey Perry, Mitch Marner, Nazem Kadri. Um, and actually Dave was inducted just last year, the year before during COVID into the London Knights Hall of Fame. So yeah, he was a Canadian Major Junior Player of the Year. Finally, he was captain of the London Knights. He, he was big man on campus um, in his junior career and then got drafted by the New York Islanders at the beginning of their dynasty which is good and bad news. I mean, not to be drafted by an amazing team, but a team that is so good that kept winning Stanley Cup. So try to be the rookie that tries to crack that lineup. Um, but, you know, as, as fate would have it, hockey didn't end up being his path after a few years of uh, playing in the minors with, um, with the Islanders farm team. He ended up back at Western where he actually now uh, teaches at the Ivy School of Business. Is that right? I did not know that. Yep. Yeah, Very interesting. And then, and then obviously Craig, uh, he went a different path and, 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 uh, kind of that, that worked out for him getting him to the highest level. It did. And, and I think Craig learned a lot from Dave, um, in understanding that at that time in particular, junior hockey, when, when education was important to you, which in our family, it always was, it's tough to play junior hockey and um, to focus on education at the same time. Like when Dave was playing for the Knights in his final year, he was he was going to Western. And when you have those road trips where you're going up you know, to Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie and, and you're on the road for days at a time, um, my mother actually would sit in on Dave's classes at Western and take notes for him. The professors loved her because she'd sit at the front and basically write down everything that they said. Um, and that helped Dave when he was missing school for hockey. But what Craig then learned was when, you know, U.S. colleges came a calling is that they were more set up for being a student athlete. And, and Michigan State was a great program for him, not just because they had a great hockey program, but education meant a lot. Like if, I feel like it was, if your average got below 80 um, at Michigan State, they had a tutor to work with you as an athlete, like to make sure that your marks, you know, didn't suffer because you played a sport. So for him, that was sort of an, an easy decision to make. And, and you're right, it ended up, especially at that time, too, because he was drafted into the NHL in 85, when things started changing, whereas before it was always, hey, if you want scouts to see you, if you even want a chance to play in the NHL, you need to play junior hockey. It started to change around the 80s where U.S. colleges were starting to become more, uh, you know, of a feeder system for the NHL and scouts started to look 
more closely at those who were playing college hockey as well. And, and now it's it's completely changed. Eh? Absolutely. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's so many kids that are coming out of U.S. colleges right into the NHL. A kid will go play a year at Michigan and then play, be playing the NHL the next year. Very much so. Now, and Chris, I, I was very sorry to hear about your sister. We can't talk about your siblings without mentioning Jan. So, But she wasn't into sports. Is that correct? No. And, and so in many ways, you know, I always say that I was very influenced by my brothers being the middle sister between the two of them, just because I think from an age standpoint, you, you know, you're kind of dragged around to where they are. Our sister, Jan, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, was the eldest, but she was someone who had no interest in sports whatsoever. Um, but I feel like I learned all of the finer things in life from her. She was the one who, you know, I learned about classical music. I learned about, um, you know, the finer things in life, going to art galleries, museums. I learned to enjoy wine. I learned, you know, about um, gourmet cooking. And so I, while I'm appreciative to my brothers because they taught me a lot about, you know, sports and what ended up being my professional career, I always credit my sister for teaching me about the finer things in life, which are just important to me. I always say this, if I'm ever on the road in an NHL city to do an interview or a game, I will, if I, if I have any window of time to myself, I will always go to the art gallery or museum in that city. And uh, so I can, I can give you a list of my favorite places to, to go and see art galleries. And it's, it's because of my sister. Awesome. I, I wish I would have had a sibling that was into the arts and culture. <laughs> that's not my strength. Got to be well-rounded, Scott. Yes, yes. So, so that, that upbringing with, with your brothers and, and you being so immersed in hockey, um, I, I, would it be safe to say that if, that, if, if you didn't have two brothers that were that into hockey that you wouldn't be where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny because I often get asked this, you know, being a broadcaster within hockey, and it's an obvious question. Oh, well, then did you play hockey? Is, is that where you started out? And no, never. I mean, I, I skated. We always had a backyard rink. We always, you know, had public skating. That was a part of my life. But when I was a little girl growing up in London, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, hockey what for girls wasn't a thing. I mean, I played baseball, I played volleyball, I was on the track team, I was a cheerleader. I mean, I was very involved in athletics, but there really wasn't organized hockey leagues for girls. So it never even was a thing, you know, a th- a, an idea for me to pursue. But you're right, because of me spending so much time around hockey, because of my brothers learning to appreciate, like loving the game and understanding the game, um, I absolutely believe that if, if I didn't grow up in a family, the middle sister of two hockey playing brothers, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And so, so the, out of Western, uh, like what, what was your first full-time gig? My first job, so I graduated from Western in 1985 and moved here to Toronto at that time. And actually what got me started here was fashion. Um, I ended up managing a boutique run by Marilyn Brooks, who was a Canadian designer at the time. And so my, my world was very much immersed in fashion. And for the first few years that I was here in Toronto, I, I loved everything about it. And actually from having worked uh, managing that boutique for a Canadian designer, 
I kind of got involved in modeling. I was I was discovered by by a scout here in Toronto. So I moved into the modeling world even for a while. And, you know, and that was cool. And I loved everything about both of those experiences. And then I kind of thought, yeah, you know what, maybe it's time to to get a real job. And I, I will say, as I'm sure everyone that you um, speak to on these podcasts, we, we all have interesting journeys to get to where we are now. But man, I had a I had a bunch of different careers before I got to where I am now. But as I'll always say, every step along the way, there was something that I took out of each one of them that have helped me with the, the role that I play now. And I think from, you know, being around the fashion world, hey, I love fashion anyway. Well, fashion is a big part of what you need to be being on TV and confidence and, um, you know, not being fearful of walking out into a, you know, a room full of people or an arena full, you know, full of fans or understanding that there might be like a couple million people watching you on TV and not being freaked out by that. I think that that's what those first few jobs that I had in Toronto kind of helped me fine tune for what was eventually going to be my career. Oh, and I do, I do remember seeing a couple pictures, Chris, of you, uh, in the modeling world. I think you showed them to me. Back in the day. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, fashion, was it then then to sports? Can, can you run us through these, this, this journey? Yeah, so the journey, uh, honestly, there were, there were a number of jif- different jobs in between, but I think the ones that finally got me, and, and uh, you know, you're, you talk a lot about events. I will say one of the jobs after the fashion world, it might have been the first job after that, but for a while I worked for the Office of Protocol in the, in the um, province of Ontario. It was when David Peterson was the premier. And so our job then was basically putting on events for all of the visiting dignitaries that would come to you. I don't even know if you know this or if you, uh, you may not. So it, we would then find, okay. Um, one of the biggest ones I remember us doing was Corazon Aquino, who was the president of the Philippines at that time was, was coming to visit the, the premier. And so then you start figuring out, okay, we're going to do a dinner in her honor. So you start recognizing, okay, who are the people from the Filipino Canadian community here in Toronto that need to be there? But the thing that I remember most of all from that event was, for those who don't recall or or know, her husband, Benino Aquino, had been assassinated um, a few years prior. So the security level of that event, I remember being, I think they said it was one step lower than the Pope. So like this was a big deal and I'll never forget sitting at a table um, at that dinner with all of the RCMP that were there and basically I'm trying to enjoy my dinner because by this point my coordination stuff is done. I can just enjoy the dinner and then you've got all these RCMP like talking into their wrists and and, like scouting the, the room to make sure everything is okay. But during that time working for the Office of Protocol with the Premier was at the same time that Toronto was um, putting together an Olympic bid at that time for the 96 Olympics. So I would get drawn into whenever there was a visiting IOC member coming to town. And that's when, you know, the sports angle of it started kind of um, being a part of my world. It's like, oh, right, okay. So if you've got an IOC member and you're trying to show off Toronto, as a great place to hold, you know, the biggest athletic event in the world, what would we, what would we do? What would we show them? Where would, where would we take them? 
So in a roundabout way, um, that kind of first got me into sports. But then I would say it, it was, um, honestly, it was my job when I worked in PR for Roots in the middle of that and that and working for Roots, you were also involved with a lot of athletes. But it wasn't until I was uh, hired at the Hockey Hall of Fame in the fall of 1992, which is where we first met. That was kind of for the very first time that I felt, okay, by that point, my my knowledge and experience in the marketing and PR worlds collided with my overall interest um, and experience within the hockey world. So it was like for the first time, I'm like, oh, right. Okay. So now I am dealing with um, an organization that is involved in a sport where I kind of feel like I know so many people in it. Um, but also, you know, from an event standpoint, being able to use my expertise, especially when, as you know, in the summer of 93, when we opened this brand new hockey hall of fame is like, okay, how do you bring sponsors on board? How do you bring the Hall of Fame honored members on board? Um, and how do you basically run a facility that you want the world to come and enjoy? That's 30 years ago, eh? That's... Isn't that hard to believe? Yeah, oh my God. Time June, sure flies. June 19th, 1993, 30 years ago. And, and uh, I'm now a kitty corner. I've spent a lot of time at that corner. That's the irony. You are you are literally across the street from where it all began. I think for both of us, it's cool. And, and uh, uh, well, and as you know, we we've had the Ho hockey hall of fame induction celebration at Meridian Hall the last two years. Yeah. So I, that was that was very special for me. Um, you know, having having worked there and then the crew coming over and doing it there. Yeah. Oh, and it's been so fun to have it there and, and yes, to also see you and to have you be a part of that as well. So you, you, you liked it there? Oh, I did. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. Um, you know, and I think you would say the same meeting and dealing with all of the, the honored members of the hall of fame, you know, these, these are relationships that will, will last forever. And for some, you know, who are no longer with us, I think of Ted Lindsay and his wife, Joanne, two of my favorite people that uh, we got to, I mean, the hall of famers, Gordy Howe and Colleen, you know, it was so special to be able to deal with um, some pretty special people in the game of hockey, but also for me, again, in a roundabout way, not that I would have known it at the time, but a lot of my job, while you were dealing with the, you know, the new inductees and the Hall of Famers, a lot of what I was doing was dealing with the media. You know, I was the one that coordinated every time the induction happened, the induction ceremony, I would be the one coordinating the media who were coming, giving accreditation, dealing with them, understanding what their needs would be to cover this event. And the irony of all of that is then, you know, a few years later, I become one of those people and felt like I had a real understanding of what it takes to do their jobs because I was on the other side of it, basically helping them do their jobs when they were covering the Hall of Fame induction ceremony or any other special events that we were having. Got it. This, this, the podcast, a special event studio is, is a, I mean, we're, we're trying to look at the people who are in the event industry. Now, like you would, you probably, you might not know what, uh, ILEA is the International Live Events Association. It's an association that I belong to. Like, I'm kind of right in the event event industry per se. But you, your your whole life has revolved around events. 
or organizing and 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 uh, um, with the office of the, the the protocol office and and like the Hall of Fame. Like you were always working with events in one way or another, and and then and, and you know even setting up an interview to go down and see Mario Lemieux in Pittsburgh, it, it, that's an event. And so you, your whole, and every, really everybody's the same thing. Like events are so intertwined in our lives. Yeah. And understanding the coordination that it takes on every level and trying to think of, okay, if this goes wrong, what is my plan B? Or if this doesn't happen, what is, what is the backup? Um, and it's funny because I was thinking about, you know, when the Hall of Fame opened, as you said, in June of 93, I mean, learning from, as you'll recall, Frank Sapovitz, who at that time was, um, I guess, the vice president of events for the NHL, who helped us with coordinating. And he had come from Radio City Music Hall. I mean, talk about knowing how to put on an event, but just watching him and learning kind of how you decide that you're going to shut down the intersection of Young and Front Streets and do the world's largest face-off with all of the living members of the Hall of Fame. Like, A, how do you even come up with that idea? And B, what hoops do you have to you know, jump through to be able to make that happen? Um, so that was one of the first people that I kind of looked to and thought, wow, okay, he knows the playbook of, of how you do these things. But one thing I was going to mention to you that I'm not even sure if you would have known. So back... Um, uh, would have been after Craig won his first, my brother Craig won his first Stanley Cup in 1988. So for, I think it was three years, we did a charity event in my hometown of London, Ontario, that was called the first year of the Craig Simpson Celebrity Classic. And then after that, for, for another two years, it was the Craig Simpson and Alan Thicke Celebrity Classic. And that was a charity softball game that came about when Craig knew after winning the Cup in 88, of course, you get your day with the Stanley Cup. So he knew that the cup was coming to London. What should we do with it? And I don't know how, but we kind of got it as a family said, well, let's do an event of some kind. So we ended up having a charity softball game that, and I was thinking back to who we had in those early years. I mean, Wayne Gretzky and Janet came, Mario Lemieux came, Gordie Howe came. We had David Foster provide the entertainment. And then Alan Thicke came for the first year because he had gone to Western. So he had ties to London, but he also, um, his son had juvenile diabetes. And so he had a commitment to do something to contribute to the Ju Juvenile Diabetes Foundation there. So then decided, well, why don't we join forces and have like an even bigger event so we can have some Hollywood celebrities in addition to um, people from the sports world. And so honestly, just by virtue of being a member of my family, I was involved in helping coordinate that event and helping deal with all of the celebrities that came in and the logistics involved with that. And that was, as I said, from like 1988 to, to 1990. So I think that's actually where I, I first kind of, yeah, started learning about what it takes to put on an event and, and learning uh, how much fun it can be. But how stressful it can how be. Stressful, yeah. Yeah. That like I don't I don't do much of the the event planning anymore. Like you know like I, I started at the Hall of Fame as as a, an event manager, but I I you know so I certainly have. But it's such a it is such a stressful position because if you if something slips through the cracks you're gonna you're gonna be found out. 
You know, if, yeah. if you forget to arrange the buses for the celebrities or the limos, like yeah. you'll find out. Yes, you will. And I also think there are so many things that are beyond your control. Like you, you can do your best to control everything. And even that is a next to impossible task. But then there will always be those things that are beyond your control that you couldn't have even imagined where you go, okay, what do we do now? And that's where you have to very quickly spring into action with a plan B. Right. And, and you, you did, you mentioned Frank's Povitz. Frank's Povitz is kind of a, you know, he's like a, a, a the guru, guru of the right. event world. Like everybody in, in, you know, that works for or associations are trying to get him and everything. But um, he, he was certainly a, a great person to watch and learn from. Uh, Absolutely. And then he, he went on after the NHL and went to the NFL. Yeah. And uh, now he's uh, running his own, he's, he's consulting on huge events as well. Yeah. Okay, so so Hockey Hall of Fame, then then you were kind of doing some double duty there for a while. While, I was. While at the Hall of Fame, did you not get in with the Leafs as well? I did. I did. And it's, it's such a funny story as to how that um, came about. So as, as you know, I started in the fall of 92 with the Hall of Fame. Uh, and in 1995, I was hired by the Toronto Maple Leafs as their very first in-arena host. And of course, that's a role now that like every NHL team has, you know, that, that woman or man, or in some cases, you know, woman and man in the stands doing contests during the course of the game or at intermission. But in 1995, like that didn't really exist. So I'll never forget that uh, Bob Stelick, a friend of both of ours who at the time was the head of marketing for the Maple Leafs calling me up and saying, so Chris, I'm thinking of doing, I'm thinking of, of having a person who, um, you know, gives more profile to our sponsors during a game. Because at that time, Paul Morris was the voice of Maple Leaf Gardens. Paul Morris was that voice that you heard calling the goals, the assists, the penalties. I mean, that was his job, sort of the, the dulcet tones of, of Paul Morris you would hear throughout the, the building. Well, as sponsors started wanting more profile, they would give Paul these reads to do for, you know, AMJ Campbell or Bell Trivia. And, and it was like, ugh. he still had that sort of, you know, the dulcet tones, but not really giving your sponsor much of a profile. So Bob had called me up and I remember him just saying, you know, we're thinking of hiring someone who could do more to really give our sponsors more of a profile and, you know, have someone actually there in the stands doing something. And, you know, so Paul doesn't have to do this because that's not his thing anyway. And then we can really make them more interactive with the fans that are there. And I thought he was just asking me this question, you know, someone who worked in marketing. So like what my opinion was, I'm like, I think that's great, Bob. I think your sponsors will love it. They'll get a higher profile. And he goes, great. I want you to do it. I'm like, what? I've never done anything like that before. Next thing I know, I have a microphone in my hand and for actually three seasons from 1995, uh, for three seasons, I was at every Leaf home game. I would work at the Hall of Fame by day take the subway up to college to Maple Leaf Gardens by night and um, be there in arena host doing the, I'm up in the gray section, 320 for the AMJ Campbell move of the game. Two fans are going to be, you know, brought down to front row goals. And, you know, it, it's so funny because I know Bob said, the reason he thought of me, and if you'll remember, 
if you called the Hockey Hall of Fame back then, uh, it was my voice. Know, yeah. It was my voice saying, welcome to the Hockey Hall of Fame. We are open every day of the week except Christmas and New Year's Day. And, you know, if you want to speak to someone in special events, press this, press it. So he knew he liked my voice from having called into the Hockey Hall of Fame and just felt like, ah, give it a try. So I'm like, okay, might as well give it a try. And I look at that as, you know, kind of the stepping stone to, you know, getting used to being in front of a live audience in that case of 17 or 18,000 people at Maple Leaf Gardens and being comfortable speaking in front of them. As you also know, though, part of my job at the Hall of Fame kind of morphed into being the spokesperson on behalf of the Hall. It just seemed like, especially that summer that we opened in 1993, we had so many media requests to come in. It's like, oh, this is this brand new state-of-the-art Hall of Fame. We want to do a story on it. Do you have someone who can take me on a tour of the Hall that we could talk to? So I would just often be the one that like, yeah, sure. So, you know, from... CBC to, you know, Good Morning America to, um, you know, NHK in Japan, I even remember taking a film crew around. I would be the one sort of walking them through the hall and explaining the displays, explaining a little about the history of the hall and a history of the Stanley Cup. And I would often have producers or hosts that were interviewing me say, boy, you know, you, you, you really know your hockey and you seem really comfortable in front of the camera. Have you ever thought of doing this for a living? I'm like, oh no, I could never do that. I have no training for that. But little did I know that that experience of kind of having that be part of my role at the Hall of Fame would also one day lead to me kind of realizing, oh yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there is something there. Maybe I could be that person who is actually on TV talking about hockey and and we will get there but just a, a shout out to you mentioned bob stelic what what a gem of a man uh, he's such a such a good guy um uh, one thing you were talking about when you when you went to you know your maple leaf gardens the first time and, and you said before that you know fashion modeling and, and and the things that you did as a younger person that would prepare you for something like like confidence and and going into that situation though for the first time like were you you had to have been nervous. Yeah, I was. Um, the the irony, though, of that, I'll never forget doing my first game at Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, and yeah, you'd think I'd be nervous, but I'll, this is a strange story, but m my house had been broken into the night before. So really? I was feeling, yeah, the night before I'm making my debut at Maple Leaf Gardens, my house is broken into. I came back from being away and so that night I'm dealing, I'm dealing with the police, I'm dealing with insurance. I like, so I'm actually very distracted and I feel like in many ways that was probably helpful because it, it kind of put everything into perspective because it was like, oh, okay. And now I just need to, I've got my scripts. I know what they want me to say. Uh, okay. I'll just go out there and do it. So I almost didn't have time to really get as nervous as I maybe should have been because I just had all of this other real life stuff that I was dealing with. And then like, Oh, okay. I, I did it. That wasn't so bad. And how did that, I can't, and, and forgive me. I, I, I'm sure I knew at the time that your house got broken into, but I, I, I forgot. It was a long time ago. So how, how hall of fame. And now you're working with the Leafs as well. And, and, and I do vaguely remember, um, 
when you were leaving, but how did that all transpire? How it ended? Well, you probably will remember because it was not my choice. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because oftentimes we can get comfortable where we are. And I was very comfortable, you know, for five years working at the Hall of Fame as the marketing manager. You kind of knew what you, what you were dealing with. You know, I would have the induction every year. I'd bring out my induction file and I'd go through what I always did for induction weekend. I had events that I would deal with every year, bringing in, you know, honored members for autograph sessions or, you know, dealing with sponsors that wanted to do things. So, I mean, I loved the job. I loved the people that I was dealing with. Um, and it was a very comfortable gig. So between that and doing the gig uh, with the Leafs, it's like, ah, oh, this is really good. Um, and then new management comes into the Hall of Fame and all of a sudden they decide that mm, maybe we don't need you here anymore. And so I found myself basically like, okay, bye-bye, Chris. Um, you, you know, I think it was, I think it was described as, you're too good for this now. It's time for you to move on. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, that's for me to decide. Like I was so shocked and thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? And the irony is it's, it's the best thing that could have happened to me because I was already getting some opportunities in television. I was getting some chances to do more um, gigs. I remember even working the uh, AHL All-Star Game uh, while I was still at the Hall of Fame and while I was still working for the Leafs. Like I was getting little opportunities here and there to actually be on camera, but I still had the security blanket of the Hall of Fame that I wasn't ready to let go of yet. Uh, and fortunately, I guess for me, my boss at the time made that decision for me, which did not feel good at the time, but was exactly what I needed to actually cut the cord and to, to move on and to figure out what was next. And I guess timing is everything because fortunately for me, the fall of 1998, CTV was starting this brand new sports network called CTV Sportsnet. And I remember cobbling together a VHS tape of basically me being interviewed the numerous times that I was through my job at the Hall of Fame and a little bit of showing what I was doing um, as an arena host for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I guess somehow they saw something in me that made them decide, yeah, she should be a reporter with us at CTV Sportsnet. So that's where my broadcasting career began in 1998. So CTV, is was that owned by Bell Media at the time? No, it wasn't. And the landscape has changed over the years, obviously. Um, it was, so CTV owned Sportsnet and, um, yeah, it was before, kind of before all of the, the telecommunications companies started taking over networks, but I do recall somewhere along the way. So CTV, so we were up at the CTV studios, which are, you know, at Young and McCallum for those who know, which is where TSN is as well. So it was, whoever the ownership was of CTV, they owned TSN and Sportsnet when we started. And then I remember within a few years, the CRTC, the Regulatory Commission, basically said, mm, CTV, you can't have a monopoly on sports networks in this country. You basically have okay. to sell one of them. And that's when they sold CTV to Rogers. 
and that's when we became Rogers Sportsnet and moved to the Rogers building that is now um, at Bloor and, and Jarvis. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 media world has changed in oh. in very many ways because yeah. it felt like it was sort of the mom and pop shop just kind of you know starting out that let's put on a show this brand new network back then um and the landscape certainly changed but i'm i'm grateful because i do feel without conventional training i on paper probably shouldn't have gotten a job for a sports network but i think sportsnet wanted to give um you know, new people a chance and it didn't want to basically just steal everybody from TSN. And I think they saw in me, my background being in hockey. So by that point I'd worked in the game. I knew like between my work with the hall of fame and the, you know, my work with the Maple Leafs and the fact that my brother was, was in the national hockey league at that point, you know, for 10 years, it was more like, she knows people. She knows how this game works. She deals with, like, as you know, I had dealt with the PR people for every NHL team for years in my role with the Hall of Fame. So now working for a network, if I contacted the Pittsburgh Penguins because I wanted to do an interview with Mario Lemieux, they knew who I was. They knew, and Mario knew who I was. So it was like, oh, even if they didn't know, like no one had a clue that first year who Rogers Sportsnet was, especially in the US. They'd never heard of us. They knew TSN and they knew CBC, right? They knew Hockey Night in Canada and they knew TSN. So I think it helped that I had maybe an unconventional background, but a background nonetheless that gave me a bit of a leg up in being able to, you know, forge a path with a new network uh, in the hockey world. So you've been there like 20 some, 20 some years now. So I was there day one. Um, I did leave for three years in the middle there. Again, management changes are always interesting. I was there for 10 years and then a different, a shift in management came. I left, um, uh, I worked for the NHL network and actually while I, I was very fortunate, even while working at Sportsnet, I was, I was lucky enough that my bosses have often seen the advantages of when other networks came calling to ask me to do things, they would see it as um, actually a good thing for us. So when, when ABC and ESPN had the NHL rights back know, 16 years ago or whatever, um, and they asked me to do ringside reporting, I got permission from Sportsnet because they knew if I was doing a game for ABC or ESPN, if I was doing a Rangers game for them, and so they were flying me there to do the game, they would be okay with like letting me stay there an extra day to end up getting an interview with one of the Rangers for Sportsnet. So I would come back with content for our network, even though you know I was there to do a game for ABC or ESPN. Then when the cool. cable network versus took over the rights, yeah. I got hired to do games for them. So I've often done double duty while still working for Sportsnet. So then for three years when Sportsnet was going in a different direction, I was able to keep myself busy enough doing games, working for the NHL. Um, I worked with MSG, uh, Madison, Square Network, uh, Madison Square Garden Network for, for a season. So for those three years, I kind of cobbled together um, you know, enough business to keep me busy. And then in uh, 2011, again, 
management changed again at Sportsnet and they hired me back because storytelling became a real focus for them again. So I have been back at Sportsnet since 2011. So yeah, all told, um, it, it's been over two decades being in the business, but uh, happily with Sportsnet for an awful long time. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and now you just do, like, do you have a, you have a special, uh, the big, the, the big picture with Chris Simpson, is that, is that yeah. still Yeah, so over the years, I have always done a combination of being a ringside reporter for our broadcast where you're at the game and you're doing the, you know, you're on the bench doing the pregame interview with the player, you're doing the intermission interviews, postgame interviews. So that, uh, that role as ringside reporter has always been part of my job. The other part has always been still doing features, doing actual storytelling. During COVID, obviously, all of that changed. And so the role of ringside reporter, um, I remember doing games in the bubble uh, when, remember, we had Toronto and Edmonton were the only places where Canadian teams were playing. And at that point, being a ringside reporter during the being in the bubble, I'm ringside, but I'm on the 300 level and I'm doing interviews over a headset to a player three levels below who's just hearing my voice like the role really changed and so and even for a while there where we weren't allowed to cross the border a lot of the games just we didn't have a rinkside reporter so you know necessity being the mother of invention you start thinking okay so that role is become is becoming dicey and i didn't even know once they did let rinkside reporters at arenas anymore I didn't know how comfortable I felt actually wanting to be in an arena. You know, I have a mother who lives in a long-term care home and I'm like, I don't know that I'm interested in traveling and being on a plane. Anyway, so I came up with this, well, my producer and I came up with a segment called The Big Picture with Chris Simpson, which was um, for two years, anyway, two seasons, basically Zoom interviews with players. But done in a, in, you know, a high production area. So, you know, in a theater or somewhere where, it looks big, but it's still a Zoom interview, but at least it was storytelling, which has always been my first love. When you're doing ringside reporting, you're asking a player two questions, game related, they're probably gonna give you a cliche answer. Whereas this segment could be, you could really delve into storytelling more. And so I've been fortunate now that the big picture, like we're in season three of that segment, and now we're actually even able to do things in person again. So sometimes it's via Zoom, but sometimes it's actually spending time with a player. So I'm doing definitely way more storytelling than rankside reporting, um, just because I think that's always been my first love is being able to have people go away with saying, oh, I watch that guy play all the time, but I didn't know that about him. It actually makes me more of a fan because I feel like I learned something about him. Like the, the, the Bobby Ryan story comes to, comes to my mind. That was awesome. One of my favorites. And, and Chris, when you, when you do that, so you, you, you know, you did that interview with Bobby Ryan. It's about a real personal, uh, you know, his life and all the, the hardships that he had. But then at the end, like we got Michaela here hiding, hiding in the background, our producer, she, she's going to take all this and she's going to make sure it's, it's good and it works and we'll send it to you and get you to approve it and all that. But do, do you have somebody that does all that for you? Cause I, I, I seem to recall you telling me that you got, you learned like editing and all that stuff. Oh, especially at the beginning when Sportsnet started again, when, when, when you work for a brand new network, I remember, especially those first seasons thinking, 
to my point, I didn't have conventional training. If someone goes to journalism school, they learn how to edit, how to write, how to produce. That's part of your training to become someone who does what I do. I didn't have the benefit of that. I had other benefits that helped me prepare for an interview because I felt like I really understood you know, what that player, what their life was like and what they were going through. So I had that advantage, but I basically learned on the fly, you know, walking into an edit suite where, yeah, I was basically kind of producing my own piece and, and learned, okay, how do I pick the clips that are going to tell the story? How do I write the script that are going to help tell that story? And at the time, I'll never forget, you know, being on the road, especially during playoffs, it would often be, I'd be on the road for Sportsnet and, and it was usually Scott Oak would be on the road for Hockey Night in Canada. And I would see like me and no producer and like a freelance cameraman. And, and I'd be kind of like telling him how to set up the, the shot and, and figuring it out on the fly. And here was Scott Oak with like a producer and a crew and like kind of took every, sort of took care of a lot of that planning and, and setting up for him. But I mean, it was the best thing. I. I had to learn, right? There was there was no other option. I had to learn how to do that. Now I would like to think now that we are a network that has been around for over two decades. I am fortunate enough that I work with some great production teams, some great producers who still though is very much a collaboration. I mean, we meet every week and we all throw out ideas of stories that we think are good and we have to um, basically explain why we think that this is a good story. So you do your background and, and you come up with your pitch as to why we should, do, you know, even try and do an interview with somebody. Um, and then questions like I come up with all of my questions. I will then share it with my producer to say, Hey, is there an angle that you know of? Like, is there, is there another direction that I'm not even maybe aware of that we should go through? So it's very much a collaboration. Um, but yeah, I will say that I, I learned a lot at the beginning just because I basically had to because there was no one else there to to do that kind of production job with me. You did, you did it all in, didn't you? Like production, I'm, did you did you arrange your own travel? Yeah, everything, everything. It is good stuff to learn though. It is, it is. As much as you're like, why do I have to do this? Uh, it's, yeah, it's a life lesson that only helps you uh, later on. Yeah, so I, I sent some of the questions that I sent you, one of them was... Uh, What's the best, craziest, scariest, or most successful event story you've, you, you, you can share? Well, I mean, there have been so many events. And, and as you know, I'm also, when you speak of events, I'm also, I've been on the uh, Cons My Sports Celebrities Dinner Committee for now, oh my gosh, like over 25 years, I guess. So that's, a, that's another event. And we've got ours coming up uh, end of March, March 29th. So always scrambling to make sure my role in that is helping get the celebrities uh, for our head table. So there are often things that ha again happen at the last minute that you're not prepared for. So there's that there, you know, one of the biggest events certainly been a part of was that grand opening of the hall of fame back in 93. But when, when you'd ask that, I think one of the more recent stories that just kind of remind you of when things go wrong, what do you do? Um, and it was, I was asked by the Toronto Maple Leafs to host, um, they always have a, a golf tournament before the season or at the beginning of season to kind of kick off their season where, you know, fans and sponsors get a chance to come spend the day on the golf course. They always have a leaf in their foursome. Um, and it's a whole day, you know, of golf. And then I was there to basically host the dinner or the, you know, late afternoon lunch after the day of golf. 
So, and we know, okay, we have a few, maybe a couple of interviews and I'm introducing people, Brandon Shanahan to talk, this, this, that, and the other thing. But I remember driving out to the golf course. This would have been before COVID, so it must have been 2019. And I'm driving out to the golf course and the weather is bad. So I'm already thinking, ooh, I wonder how many holes they're going to get in before they're going to have to call it or what's going to happen. And as I'm driving out to the golf course, I get the call from the organizers um, basically saying, okay, just so you know, you know, we have a couple hundred golfers that are, that are, you know, on their way here, many of them here, and we got breakfast ready for them. They don't know yet, but we are not getting out on the golf course today. Like it, the weather is too bad. There's thunder, there's lightning. There will be no golf. So just so you know, as soon as you get here, we are going to have to find a way to entertain 400 people for the next few hours who have paid a lot of money to be able to play golf with their favorite league. And they're not going to get a chance to do that, but we can't let them leave the day going, Oh, well that was a rip off. So I arrived and you're cut. It's one of those times where you're like, Hmm, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and let's put on a show. So I sat there with the Leaf staff and we decided, okay, you're going to do a panel discussion with Austin Matthews and William Nylander and Mitch Marner. And then you're going to do a Q and a with Kyle Dubas. And then you're going to do the, and, so we basically on the fly within probably 45 minutes came up with a, a whole program that ended up being one of the most exhilarating events that I've been a part of because it was so last minute and so on the fly. Uh, but I think to the point where I've heard a lot of people say that day, I mean, yeah, if you're an avid golfer, you, you miss the chance to golf for the day. But in many ways, it was a more intimate day because A, they got to actually sit at their table with their leaf for a lot longer than, than they would have. Um, and everyone just kind of, I don't know, you, you, you learn just to make the most out of a situation that you have absolutely no control over. Um, and to this day, it was, it was one of the most fun times I've had at, at an event, probably way more fun than if I had again, a limited role in hosting the dinner after a day of golf. And that, and that's no small feat because you know that 99% of the people going there are like golf, Yep. you know, and, and I've been, I've had that before and it was brutal. Yeah. It um, can be. So how, like how long did, how long did you get it last? How long did our, Oh yeah. We were a few, we, we were a few out like, cause they wanted to make it worthwhile. So we were probably three hours. Yeah, good, good for you. Like one thing after another, and then this, and then that, and it's like, all right. And whereas usually it's like, okay, you have five minutes, you know, with this player, and then we'll get on to the next thing. Well, then it's like, yeah, stretch it out as long as you want. <laughs> so, hey, the conversation's going well. You just keep it going because you want to feel like you have given that room full of people something that entertained them. Absolutely. Good job. Congratulations. Thank you. So, so Chris, what's, uh, what's the future look like? That's a really good question. Um, Hey, I will continue to do what I'm doing. I mean, it's, it is nice, like, as I said, now for things to be a bit more normal when it comes to doing interviews. And so it's been so nice. And actually I, I just spent an afternoon, um, 
with Michael Bunting, uh, Toronto Maple Leaf, that's going to come up. Those, for instance, those are the days that I love. So he's a Scarborough boy, right, playing for his hometown team. And, and again, I was like, wanted to pitch an idea. And I read that he's involved with the Boys and Girls Club in Scarborough, a club that he went to when he was a kid and thought, hmm, well, if I pitch this and we can take him to the Boys and Girls Club, you know, we might see a different side of him. So not only was he game for that, but then I thought, okay, I want him to show me his Scarborough. And so we knew we were, I was going to have him drive me around Scarborough and show the different sites. And I said, well, maybe we can drive by your high school, your old high school. And he goes, well, I still know some of my teachers there. Do you want me to call them? And like, we can go in. I'm like, uh, yes, please. So next thing we know, we're in his high school. We're surprising all the kids in, in the gym that afternoon. We're seeing his old teachers. Um, so that's a feature that's going to be coming up. I think it's going to be on a hockey night in Canada uh, night in the next uh, week or two. So I'm really enjoying being able to do more like in-depth stories like that in person. And I will con continue doing that for the foreseeable future. As I've said before, you never know what the future holds, especially in, in this industry. Um, but for now, I continue to, to keep telling stories and enjoying it. And um, beyond that, I'm sure there's more out there that I will figure out along the way. And uh, But for now, still loving what I'm doing. Awesome. Well, I will continue to look forward to your stories. Um, as, as we kind of get, as we wrap it up, can you, can you share one life lesson that you've learned along the way? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it is cause I've mentioned it before. Sometimes, you know, we can get really comfortable with what we do and you kind of get into your rhythm and you get into your pattern and you know, you can, you can nail it. You can do your job. Um, probably the lesson would be, don't be afraid to go out of your comfort zone. And sometimes it's not because of your choice, as we mentioned. Um, but I feel like that's the only time that you really actually maybe get to see what else you can accomplish is when you're pushed off that ledge. Um, and that can be scary, but sometimes I think that, you know, maybe that golf tournament, that canceled golf tournament is an example. Could have gone out, hosted a golf tournament. All of a sudden, putting on a show in a way that I never thought that I could do. My, my role at the Hockey Hall of Fame, I was really satisfied being the marketing manager. Done it for five years until I was pushed out the door. And I was like, oh no, what do I do now? Well, I ended up finding my true calling, which was being a sports broadcaster. Um, and I don't know if I would have found that on my own. But I think that's the lesson, is don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Don't, don't be afraid to, to try something that maybe scares you because that's where I feel sometimes we find what our real calling is. Awesome. I will, I will keep that in mind. I, I told you this before, I believe, that I, I found some, well, I had some old, uh, I've got these tapes. Like there's, there's one of Boria Salming, uh -huh. and, and I'm, I'm figuring out how to get that transferred. But I got my VHS, and I did figure out how to do that. And I have, and do you remember when we went to Chatham to Mulligan Sports uh, sports bar took the cup and, and a bunch of different artifacts and and uh, Ron Corstein interviewed you my dad interviewed me uh, so I have that on tape oh. I've got that and then there's another interview that I did with you um, I'm still figuring out how to get that transferred but when I get them I'll send them to you oh I'd love to see it but it was great it was great getting caught up and and, and you, 
you, you brought up a lot of stuff that I had forgotten, so thank you for that. Um, I still I still owe you lunch one of these times, so we'll get we'll get caught up. I'm going to take you up on that. Absolutely, we will. But but thanks, Chris, and and uh, you know, keep keep up the awesome work. Uh, you look you look awesome. People are going to be saying 25 years is that that doesn't seem possible. She's so young, uh, but. Uh, Keep it up. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And and you you said uh, that you would do this. And and as soon as I as soon as I contacted you, you were in. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Scott, and you know I said it when I first kind of got into the hockey broadcasting world too. It's it's what you do, and it's how professional you are. But it's also the the relationships that you make that that will help you along, you know, your road in life wherever you go. And you are one of those people. We have been friends since the day that we both started at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And you know that I will always have your back. And uh, glad to see that you're getting into the podcasting world. I love that. So you're spreading your wings a little bit too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm doing it because of you. And it's been great for me too to kind of think back to a lot of great memories that I have over the years uh, from our days together at the Hall. Well, thank you, Chris. And, and and this is getting out of my comfort zone because I've been nervous about this for the whole weekend. I've spent the weekend in London, by the way. Oh, my, my old hometown. So thanks again. Thank you, Scott. It's been great chatting with you.